of a wealthy family who took his son on a trip to the country to show his son how poor people can be. They spent a couple of days and nights on the farm of what would be considered a very poor family. On their return home from the trip, the father asked his son, How was the trip? It was great, Dad. Did you see how poor people can be, the father asked. Oh, yeah, said the son. So what did you learn from the trip, asked the father. The son answered, I saw that we have one dog, and they have four. We have a pool that reaches to the middle of our garden, and they have a creek that has no end. We have imported lanterns in our garden, and they have stars at night. Our patio reaches to the front yard, and they have the whole horizon. We have a small piece of land to live on, and they have fields that go beyond sight. We buy our food, but they grow theirs. We have walls around our property to protect us, but they have their friends to protect them. With this, the boy's father was speechless. Then his son added, Thanks, Dad, for showing me how poor we are. This is a small story that shows us the importance of understanding contentment and where we find contentment and how we understand contentment. And I think it holds truth for us as Christians for what we value and what we are satisfied in. This morning, we come to our last passage in Philippians chapter 4, where we deal with two topics, contentment and generosity. And both of these are meant to point us to Christ himself and how in our following in his footsteps, we bring glory to God. This morning, my desire is that you would leave here encouraged, understanding the truths of what the Word of God teaches us that enable us to live with contentment and generosity for the glory of God. So our passage this morning deals with contentment, generosity, and the glory of God. And if you're taking notes this morning, our main point is this. Contentment in Christ should move us to generosity for God's glory. Contentment in Christ should move us to generosity for God's glory. And our main point will serve as our main points for today. First, contentment in Christ. Second, should move us to generosity. Third, for God's glory. And then we'll conclude with some final comments. Please turn with me to Philippians 4, 10 through 23. And if you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, it's located on page 982. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, 
I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, when you sent me help for my needs once and again, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. If you're joining us for the first time or have missed some of the previous sermons in this series, today we come to our final section in Philippians. And while we are going through a steady diet uh, of expositing the book of Romans, today we come to finish our occasional visit to Philippians. And so far in Philippians, we've learned that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church at Philippi. One that he started, and if you want to um, know or learn more about uh, when this took place, you can read Acts 16. This letter was a warm and affectionate letter that was written to the Philippians, a church that Paul deeply cared for. And it is a remarkable letter that is filled with joy, even though it was written from a Roman prison while Paul waited his trial. And Paul wrote this letter for a few reasons. He wrote this letter to inform the Philippians of his circumstances while imprisoned in Rome. He also wrote this letter to encourage them that in uh, in their situation as they experienced their own trials from the outside and from within. And one of the main reasons that he wrote this letter as well was to express his gratitude for the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. The Philippians, though poor and persecuted, always had Paul in mind and partnered with him in the gospel. This is what he opened his letter with, a gratitude for their partnership, and this is now how he ends his letter. So let's look at what Paul teaches us as he ends this letter. So this brings us to our passage for today. And once again, our main idea is contentment in Christ should move us to generosity for God's glory. So first, contentment in Christ. In this first section, Paul expressed great joy because the Philippians had revived their concern for him again. And you see that there uh, in verse 10 of chapter 4. Their concern had to do with a unity of mind where they agreed to be concerned for the sake of the gospel as we saw in chapter 1, verse 27. If you want to turn there with me, and today we're going to be doing a lot of turning back and forth uh, of a page going back and forth because it's it's a short letter. But in 127, we read this. Paul writes, 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, he, he writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or deceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So by caring for Paul, the Philippians were thinking as a unit. So in other words, Paul expresses his joy because of their thoughtful concern. They showed their concern for him by sending Paul financial and practical help with one of their church members, Epaphroditus, and we read of him in chapter 4. Now their help was important to Paul because he was on house arrest in Rome. And being imprisoned in Rome was nothing like it is being imprisoned uh, here in the United States today, where inmates are cared for, um, they have PE or physical education time, arts and crafts time, lunch, showers, and all of that. Paul didn't have that. To be imprisoned during Paul's time required care from the outside world to ensure one's own survival. While, so while their help was important to Paul, and he was thankful for it, he wasn't mentioning this to give them the impression that he was in need. Because if you look there at verse 11 of chapter 4, Paul writes, to clear this up, not that I am speaking of being in need. So Paul acknowledged the Philippians' giving and addresses it more in more detail later in the letter. But he had something important in mind that he wanted to teach them, and that is, it is possible to be content in any situation, whether good or bad. And we see that in the rest of verse 11. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, it's helpful to understand what Paul means by being content. Because in Paul's day, contentment was understood to be an essential virtue, describing the attitude of a wise person who relied on himself because of his own resources. In other words, contentment in Paul's days had to do with being self-sufficient. However, while contentment is an attitude, Scripture teaches us that it's an attitude of the heart that entrusts itself to God's care. For example, in Hebrews 13.5, we read, Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. And here the reason that one is supposed to be content is because God has promised to never leave nor forsake His people. And in a moment, Paul will add to our understanding of Christian contentment. But here in verses 12 through 13, Paul teaches us three things about contentment. So look at and read uh, verse 11 and 12 with me. Paul writes, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. 
In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. The first thing we notice about contentment is that contentment is learned. Contentment is learned. This is not something that comes natural to us. Because of sin, our hearts have been tempted or have been distorted, and we now uh, are tempted to not trust in God's provision, or we are easily dissatisfied with what He has provided and with who He is. But Paul says that his experiences taught him to be content. And Paul tells us twice that he had learned to be content. And you see that in verse 11 and 12. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In any and in every, situa- in, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And we find examples of Paul's lessons on contentment that he learned. For example, in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Now, you don't need to turn there, but listen to some of the uh, instances where Paul learned contentment through his experience. Regarding his ministry and suffering as an apostle, this is what he writes in 1st Corinthians 4.11. To this present hour, we hunger, thirst. We are poorly dressed and, and are homeless. In 2 Corinthians 11, he writes, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst, often without food. In cold and exposure. So here we find just two examples of times where Paul learned contentment. It was not after just one experience, rather it came through multiple experiences that he learned to be content. So that's the first thing that we learned about contentment. It is learned. The second thing we learn about contentment is that it does not depend on our circumstances. It does not depend on our circumstances. In 11, Paul writes, Because I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He goes on to say that it is possible to be content in any situation. Notice the three examples he gives us in verses 12 through 13. He writes, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul helps us see that having much or having little does not have to be a hindrance to your contentment. Whether you have the dream house that you've worked so hard for, and all of a sudden you have to let go of it. Whether you are used to eating at your favorite restaurants, but all of a sudden you can't afford it anymore. Whether you are in a position to give to others, but all of a sudden now you're in a position where you're dependent on others. Paul says that it is possible to be content in any of these situations because contentment does not depend on our circumstances. So that's the second thing that we learn about contentment. It does not depend on our circumstances. 
But we learn one more thing about contentment. And we find that in verse 13. Read it with me. Verse 13 says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. This is the secret to being content in any circumstance. It's Christ. Specifically, through our union with Christ and our satisfaction in Christ. Now, this verse holds a lot of truth for Christians, but sadly, it is one of the most misunderstood and misapplied texts in Scripture. This text is misused in a variety of contexts. For example, it's used as motivation to be successful in life. It's used as a way to think positive about situations and to be hopeful to change one's undesirable circumstances into positive ones. And it's even used in sports for motivation to win championships. In 2015, Steph Curry released his signature shoe, the Curry One. And it had, I can do all things on the inside of the sneaker tongue which comes from our passage today. When interviewed and asked about it, he said, it means a lot to be able to spread that message, whether that's what you believe or whether it helps you find whatever it is that motivates you to do all things. Every time you put on the shoe, it's a good reminder of what is possible. So to Curry, the verse in his shoe is for those who believe it or It serves as a means to find motivation to succeed in all things. The mistake that is made is that it takes the verse out of context and is used for whatever the the reader wants it to mean. So, how do we find the right understanding or the right application of the text? Well, we're to look at the context of the verse. And as we've seen, Paul has been writing about contentment in any circumstance. So reading the surrounding verses helps us to rightly understand and apply a passage. Another thing that we can do is to read different versions to help us understand the passage. For example, the NIV translates verse 13 as, I can do this through Christ who strengthens me, pointing us back to the context. This is referring to uh, what's here in the context. So Paul teaches us that, We can face difficulties and still be content. And the reason is because of our union with Christ. Contentment is grounded in our relationship with Christ. And Paul teaches us that Christ is enough. If we have Christ, we have everything. And He becomes enough because of the grace that we have in Christ. Remember, In an undesirable situation, like losing your job, your house, or even a loved one, you can be content because of the grace that you have in Christ. That doesn't mean that you won't experience hurt or pain, but you can still have this attitude of heart because you have Christ. So let's say you lose your job and are tempted to be anxious like we saw last week. If you're in Christ, you can be content because He has provided your most important need, 
which is right standing with God through His sacrifice on your behalf. And if He has provided for your most important need, won't He also provide for less important ones too? Let's say you go from an undesirable situation to a desirable one, like not having enough money to cover the things you desire, um, to having a job that provides you with more money than you ever thought you'd make. You can be content with what you make and not give yourself to trying to find satisfaction in temporal things because you're in Christ. You have the most prized possession which money can't buy. So in Christ, you have been reconciled with God, justified before Him, adopted and forgiven. So when you understand these things, you will be content. In essence, Christian contentment is about believing that Christ is enough. This is the key to being content in all things. So Christian, this is encouraging because in Christ you have what the world desires. The greatest treasure that leads to true contentment, which is Christ. So I want to ask you, are you content with what God has given you? Or are you more concerned or obsessed with the temporal things of this world? Can you say with Paul, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these things? Not because contentment makes you right with God. Instead, because contentment displays your love for Him. If so, praise God for His work in your life. But if not, then confess it before God. Turn away from it and look to the one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant who willingly humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that you would belong to him. So the first thing we've seen is that true contentment is learned. It doesn't depend on our circumstances and it is found in Christ. This brings us to our second main point. Contentment in Christ should move you to be generous. And we find this in verses 14 through 18. In this section, Paul returns to the Philippians' generosity and gives some more attention to it. In 4.10, Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, now that at length you have revived your concern for me. You were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, in verse 14, he writes, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. The Philippians sharing in Paul's trouble is another way of saying that they were partners in the gospel. If you look at chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, we saw that, Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the very first day until now. This partnership involved your financial giving to help support and care for him as he did gospel work. And so we see this here in 4, 15 through 16. Read it with me. Paul writes, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, 
When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. The Philippians' giving was not just any kind of giving. We see that their giving was a display of their partnership with Paul in the gospel. It was something that had been taking place since day one of Paul's ministry, as seen in Acts 16. And what's interesting about this church is that although some of the members of the Philippian church seemed to be financially well off, the church as a whole was poor. But this did not get in the way of their generosity. Their joy fueled their desire to give. And you can read more about that in 2 Corinthians 8-9. through Now, while the Philippians' generosity was financial, it was also sacrificial. And by God's grace, we see growing evidences of that here at First Baptist Church. As I was reading this and I was thinking about these things, I was praising God for this. Because by God's grace, we have brothers and sisters who give sacrificially of themselves by coming early to prepare to lead us in worship or to serve us in the sound booth. By God's grace, we have nursery and children ministry workers who sacrifice their time under the teaching of the word so that they would serve other members here and their children. Or others who serve in hospitality by arranging or cooking or setting up or cleaning up so that our church can enjoy times of fellowship. Or our ushers who come early to prepare to serve in different ways, such as preparing for the Lord's Supper or baptism or collecting and recording the offerings. Praise God. But why is this important? Well, our text shows us that being generous givers in our gospel partnership is a blessing in at least three different ways. Being generous givers in our gospel partnership is a blessing in at least three different ways. The first way that it's a blessing is that it blesses others. Being generous blesses others. We see it in verses 14 through 16, where Paul says, It was kind of you to share my trouble. From the beginning of Paul's ministry to the Philippians, they supported his ministry of advancing the gospel. And after Paul left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with Paul, only the Philippians, according to verse 415. It's as if some of the churches had a consumeristic mentality receiving Paul's labor, but not partnering with him to advance the gospel. This helps us see the importance of being generous givers in our partnership in the gospel, specifically in the local church. When we give generously to our church, we partner to advance the gospel through the ministry here at First Baptist Church so that it blesses others. For example, When we give of our time by serving in a particular ministry, such as children's ministry or nursery, it blesses parents to sit under the preaching of the word so that they would be equipped to share the gospel and or encouraged by the gospel so that they would grow in Christ-likeness. Or when we give of our resources or finances cheerfully and regularly, we support this ministry and the advancement of the gospel through all nations. 
And in turn, this blesses First Baptist Church and those ministries that we support on a monthly basis who are also doing great work, great gospel work around the world. So why do we give? Well, the reason we are generous or we are to be generous is because we serve a God who is generous and loves to bless others. He has blessed us most by giving us his son, Jesus Christ, to lay his life down to take away our sin. Paul writes to the Philippians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we see that our being generous blesses others. And we do this because God is generous and He has blessed us. The second reason we should be moved to, gen- to being generous is because it also blesses you, the giver. In verse 17, we read, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul writes that his gratitude is not because he's looking to get another gift from them. What he's saying is that he rejoices in their giving, not because it will bless him, but because it will bless them. And you see it there in verse 17. He writes, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And once again, Paul uses financial language. Now, in the economy of God, think about your generosity or your generous giving like that of a credit card that offers you 100% cash back rewards on all of your gospel spending. It's crazy, right? Because there's no such thing in, in the real world, in an actual credit card. But if you think about the economy of God, it's like using this type of credit card where you get 100% cash back rewards on all of your gospel spending. And your 100% cash back rewards are credited to your account and redeemable when you're united with Christ in paradise. And your rewards come with no expiration dates with purchase protection, and with roadside assistance. In other words, when we spend generously in gospel advancement, we don't lose. We actually win. Praise God. Now, I want to clarify something. Generous giving is not a means to gain acceptance with God. Generous giving is not a means to gain acceptance with God. Paul is not saying that you're to be generous to earn right standing with God. Paul Paul has already addressed this earlier in chapter 3, where he wrote about counting every good deed he once counted as valuable before God as loss or as trash in order to gain Christ and his work on his behalf. He writes that the righteousness that he was after was not his own. Instead, It is the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. So this generous giving is not a means of gaining acceptance. And this kind of generous giving, it's also not the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel teaches that you give to God so that God gives you, specifically health and wealth. 
The more that you give, the more that God has to give you. And the timing for receiving it is in the here and now. But this is not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is more of what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19 through 20, where Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves on earth treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the perspective that Paul calls us to have. Your generous giving is to stand from love and gratitude for God because He has first given to you in abundance and continues giving to you. And He has rewards in heaven for those that seek His kingdom and its advancement here on earth. So that's the second thing that we learn about being generous. It blesses the giver, namely yourself. The third thing that we learn about being generous is that it blesses God. It blesses God. If you look at verse 18 of chapter 4, it says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Here we find Paul using Old Testament language to describe the Philippians giving as an act of worship. Similar to the way the Old Testament describes the system of worship given to the Israelites, Paul says that generous giving produces a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice that's pleasing to God. This is amazing. So when you give for the sake of gospel advancement, without the desire of doing it to get something in return, your giving is pleasing to God. Generous giving in Christ is acceptable to God. Therefore, you should strive to give to God, not because you have to, but because you have the privilege of doing so now. And because your giving is an act of worship. Because you want to bless the one who gave his son for you. Because he is worthy of it. Remember, it's not because you want to earn right standing It's because you have been given right standing in Christ Jesus. So Christian, is it your desire to bear fruit in this area of your Christian life? Do you desire to be a generous giver? A sacrificial giver? If not, it would be good to take some time to meditate on the reason for why you don't want to be this way. Do not buy into the lie that you cannot imitate the Father's generosity. If you're in Christ, you're now able to, and you have the privilege to be generous for the advancement of His kingdom. And if it's new to you, I'd encourage you to meet up with someone from the church and ask them to help you walk you through the ways in which they strive to be generous givers. Because as we do this, we imitate the great giver, God Himself. So we've seen that contentment in Christ should move you to be generous. And now we come to the reason for this. 
Why do we do this? Which is our third main point. Well, we do this for God's glory. We do this for God's glory. And we find that in verses 19 and 20. Here we come to another promise in Philippians. In verse 19 we read, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So here Paul says, Just as you supply for the needs of God's kingdom, God will also supply for your needs. And notice where it comes from. It comes according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So why do we give? Well, we give because of the gospel. God has supplied our greatest need in Jesus Christ. We give because of God's generosity to us in the gospel. In the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, God has supplied for our greatest need. In Romans 5, 7 through 8, Paul writes, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God supplied your greatest need before you knew it. You knew that you needed it and gave it to you even though you didn't deserve it. God's generosity is the reason that you are to be generous, that we are all to be generous. A second reason that we're to give for God's glory is that God continues to supply our every need. And notice that it says that He will provide for our needs, not for our wants. And this is important to know because sometimes we get our needs and our wants confused. God will provide everything we need in this world to live for His glory and to help us grow in Christ's likeness. And we touched on this last week in Matthew 6, where we were called not to be anxious because the good Father knows that we need shelter, that we need food, and that we need clothes. He knows that we need them and He provides. But sometimes we pray for wants, the latest toys, more money, a relationship, temporal things. And in God's kindness, He sometimes provides for these things. And other times, He withholds them from us. Not because He is bad or because He's trying to kill your joy, but because He loves you and knows what's best for you. In Romans 8.32, Paul also writes, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for uh, for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? So God provides for our every need. Not your every want, but definitely for your every need. And because we can trust God's character, that He is good, that He is kind, that He is loving, that He is holy, we know that He will not do anything that is evil towards us. And what is the purpose that God supplies us for? Well, in verse 20, we find that it's for God's glory. If you look there at verse 20, Paul writes, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Here we find the reasons why God is worthy of being glorified in all of this. Here we find that God, first, God is able to supply. God is able to supply. The one who created the world by the power of His word, the one who sustains it by the word of His power, is the same one who has unlimited riches and glory in Christ Jesus to supply you with what you need. So he is worthy of being praised and glorified. But he also supplies our needs that we would continue giving back to him or in gospel partnership, in gospel advancement. When we give back to him to advance his kingdom, to display his love, we display our trust in him, showing that God is good showing that He is loving and that He is trustworthy. And this brings Him glory because it shows where our heart is and where we put our trust. And third, the one who supplies is the one who receives glory. God is the one who is resourceful. And as Christians, we understand that everything we have comes from His good hand. We have nothing that was not first given to us by God. So as we make our requests known to God according to His will, He promises to answer for our good and His glory. So everything that He entrusts us with, everything that He gives us, is for His glory and for our good. Now if you're visiting us this morning and you know yourself not to be a Christian, we are thankful for you. We're happy that you're here. We've prayed for you to be here. And with all of this talk about generous giving, I'd like to tell you a little bit about this generous God and what He has done for sinful people like us. The Bible tells us that He created all people so that we would live under His good rule and His good reign. And we were made in His image to obey Him and to advance His glory in this world. But the bad news is that man has turned on God. And rather than being generous towards God in our obedience, we have been self-seeking, giving ourselves to advancing our own agenda by living however we want. And the consequence of this is death and even eternal death. But God has displayed His grace and generosity towards man by giving us what we did not deserve, His Son, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life and gave His life as a sacrifice. And God raised them from the dead three days after, so that if you repent of your sins and put your trust in Him, you can receive this great gift of salvation from this generous God. This is the good and generous God of the Bible who calls you to turn to Him. And if He is this good and generous and He would do this for you, why wouldn't you come to Him? So if you have any questions about this gospel, about this generous God, I invite you to ask myself or Pastor Jeremy or David or anyone around you, and we'd be more than happy to tell you more about this generous God. So now that we've seen that contentment in Christ should move you to be generous for God's glory, we come to some final comments here at the end of Philippians, some final greetings. We read, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. 
All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I want to draw your attention to a few things. In verse 21 and verse 22, we find Paul greeting every saint in Christ Jesus. And he says that the brothers who are with him greet them, the Philippians. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Here we find Paul reminding them, just as he did in the beginning of the letter, that they were saints in Christ because of who Christ is. Their common denominator is Christ. And here we find testimony of gospel advancement, that which made Paul joyful, that which he gave his life for. Because if you remember, in the beginning of the letter, Paul wrote to the Philippians to let them know of his circumstances, that while he was on house arrest, there were some who were making it difficult for him. But he, despite his circumstances, continued preaching the gospel. And here, in verse 22, he writes, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. It's believed that Paul was sharing the gospel with these soldiers, these Roman soldiers that were uh, handcuffed to him, if you want to put it that way, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And word, the gospel, started to spread throughout Rome. And it eventually got to Caesar's household. This testifies to the power of the gospel that couldn't be stopped, not by chains, not by prison, not by Caesar. The gospel will advance. And here we find testimony of that. And so Paul includes all of the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi and in Rome in sending their greetings. But we also see that every saint depends on God's grace in Christ. If you look at verse 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 2, excuse me, in Paul's opening greeting, he writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way that he ends his letter. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace is understood to be undeserved and unexpected favor from God. And this is exactly what Paul was writing to them about. It is this grace that God gave to these people and to all Christians who would turn to Him by faith in Christ. It is God's grace that draws people to Himself. It is God's grace that gives people the privilege of not only believing in Jesus, but also suffering for Jesus. It is God's grace that brings us. It is God's grace that, that keeps us safe. It is God's grace that brings us home. And so here we're pointed back to the grace of God in giving His Son to sinful people who repent and believe in Him. It is grace to believe and grace to persevere. So here we come to the end of Philippians, where Paul has been teaching the Philippians and us about joy, joy in the gospel. Joy in the gospel to 
give our lives to it for the advancement of the gospel for God's glory. This is something that we're called to do. We're called to stand firm during our time here while we wait for Jesus. We are not to just sit around doing nothing, but we're called to be active in our waiting, advancing this very gospel that Paul said he was very happy to give his life for because to him, to live was Christ and to die was gain. And as we touched on the themes of imitation, we have Paul, Epaphroditus, Timothy, and then we have brothers and sisters here in this church who are worthy of emulating as we follow in Christ's footsteps to advance the gospel for God's glory. Praise be to God, our gracious God, who has called us into this gospel for His glory. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise You for Your undeserved grace and for Your mercy. We acknowledge that we only deserve Your justice, but we praise You for giving us Your grace. We praise You that You gave us Your Son, Jesus Christ, even while we were Your enemies, so that in Him we would be counted worthy of not only believing in Christ, but also suffering for Him. We pray, Father, that You would increase our joy so that while we are in this world, in Hacienda Heights or the greater Los Angeles area, we pray that this joy would compel us to live boldly for Your glory, that we would advance the gospel in all that we do, in our relationships, in our friendships, in our jobs, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our studies. Help us, Lord, to give ourselves to advancing the gospel for the glory of your name. It's in Christ Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen.